Okay, so this morning we talked about some principles of spiritual leadership that we saw from the life of Christ in a specific passage, Matthew chapter 9 and into chapter 10. And we finished by looking at a verse out of the Old Testament, a guy by the name of Absalom, and how of his own accord he decided to build a monument to himself so that future generations would remember that he had been on the earth. And the scriptures make it clear that the reason he did this was because he said he did not have a son to preserve his name. And we also talked about how part of spiritual leadership is leaving awake, leaving an impact so that when you are no longer present in an area, either because you've PCS'd or the Lord has taken you home, who are the people that you've impacted who you leave behind who are walking with Christ and advancing his kingdom, even though you're not present? Jesus had... At least 12 that we know of, the 12 disciples, who spent the rest of their earthly lives passing on the teachings of Christ and living out the mission of Christ to their generation. And we've been called to engage in the same work. So we're going to pick up on that idea and talk this afternoon about spiritual generations. We'll be spending most of our time in the book of Genesis, although we'll move to some other passages. We'll kind of move from the Old Testament to the New Testament, but first... I want to introduce you to some very important people. This striking gentleman by the name of Thomas Jefferson Stroud happens to be my great-great-great-grandfather. He was born in 1838, died in 1876, and he is responsible for moving our branch of the Stroud clan to western Kentucky, where most of my family, extended family, still lives. He fought on the losing side of the Civil War in uh, the Army of Tennessee, and died having had five children, three boys and two girls. One of his sons, his fourth child, was a guy named John Wesley Stroud, referred to in my family as Papa. That's my great-great-grandfather, and you can see the years that he lived. Probably throughout his entire life, he didn't travel out of a 50-mile radius, never owned a car, never farmed with a tractor, always used a mule, had six children, four boys and two girls. And out of my physical ancestors, this was one of the guys who was probably the most spiritual. I actually have an audio recording uh, from, this, from this guy, which is pretty amazing considering he died in 1958. It's about a five-minute recording that he gave at his home church in Mount Pleasant, Kentucky. And one of the things that he uh, stated at the end of his life was that he wanted every man and woman in this country to be a genuine Christian and be saved. I want to see them in heaven. And I know that he had a big impact on my father in a spiritual sense. Again, not real creative with the name there, John Wesley Stroud. But then we get pretty creative. You'll see some uh, some interesting names here in the next couple of generations. Lois Kai Stroud went by the name L.K., also referred to in our family as Pa, my great-grandfather. Lived a pretty long life into his 80s. He was a jack-of-all-trades, a farmer, a dog breeder. He loved to hunt, to fish. He was an avid outdoorsman, and he was a tree salesman. He had six children, five boys, and one girl. My oldest son, uh, Kai, is named after this guy. Then my grandfather was named Layman Dana Stroud. He went by uh, Dana. He died uh, a little bit younger in life. I never got the chance to meet him. I was born in 1973. Again, from the same hometown in western Kentucky. Was a state trooper, but his passion in life was farming. That's what he saw himself as. And uh, being a state trooper was just a way to pay the bills because there wasn't much money in farming. Also served in World War II under General Clark and was part of the Italian campaign. Had six children, four boys and two girls, one of whom was my father, James Darrell Stroud, who is still living. Cadiz, Kentucky is only a couple hours east of Mount Pleasant where he grew up. Dad spent 10 years in the Navy He also spent uh, 10 plus years as a teacher in various settings, and he was also a welder for 15 years. He loves to work with his hands. My dad got his bachelor's degree in history with the idea that he would teach, because that's one of his passions. He loves history. In fact, all of this is coming from my dad, because he has traced our family line back about a thousand years through his his research, and so uh, I'm indebted to him for a lot of this information. Because again, this is the only guy I've met on this list so far. Had three children, two boys and one girl. I also have an adopted brother and an adopted sister, so I grew up in a family of five. This is my mom. She also was born in the same area as my dad, and they've been married this year 40 years. My mom is an incredible woman. She is an entrepreneur. Probably the reason we had food 
when I was growing up was because of her. No knock on my dad, but my dad, my dad would be happy mowing yards. He, he, he didn't really have a lot of uh, ambition to make a lot of money. My mom is pretty good in that area, so uh, she started her own business when I was still in my uh, early years, probably six, seven, eight years old. And I can remember the difference it made in our uh, family household budget. We went from buying t-shirts for a quarter at yard sales to actually being able to go to Dollar General and buy some clothes, which is pretty cool. In the middle of her life, she decided she would become a nurse. So in her 40s, she put herself through a nursing school, and uh, she is now a nurse and has been for the past uh, 10 years or so. Really incredible woman, one of my heroes in life for sure. This was taken last year. This is my dad and my younger brother, Phil. And this is my family. This is my wife, uh, Cindy. And we have uh, four children, as I mentioned, our daughter, Hannah, and then our son, Kai, Ethan, and uh, Jackson. So, why start with these pictures? Well, I like them for one reason. They're uh, some good people and very important to me in my life. But also because all of us come from somewhere. None of us just popped into existence on the earth. All of us come from a long, continuous chain of humanity. And even if you don't have photos or you don't know names, somebody in a previous generation had something to do with you being here today on the earth physically. And it's good for us to remember that because oftentimes we think in the present and the future and we don't really think about where we've come from or why we're here. Another reason I wanted to start just by going through these photos is because I think physical generations give us a glimpse, they're a parable of sorts, to what God is doing spiritually. And so all of us are here spiritually because of past generations of men and women who have been faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, and many of whom have invested in our lives personally. Also because I want to communicate over these next few minutes that if you really want to make your life count, you need to discover what God's plan is and to make it the priority of your life. And it has to do with generations. This plan that God has that each of us needs to discover and embrace as the plan of our lives has to do with generations. So if we're going to understand what God is up to, so that we can get on board with it, there's a few things we need to know about God. One is that God is a spiritual God. He's always been a spiritual God. That, met, that might go without saying, but it was just as true in the Old Testament as it is in the New. Even though in the Old Testament we see God working primarily through physical families, physical genealogies, God has always been a spiritual God. And John 4.24 tells us that He is seeking for those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Also, we need to understand, not only is God a spiritual God, but He is a God who does not get off task. God has had a plan and a purpose from day one, and He is committed to seeing that plan through. So let's just look at a few passages from the Scriptures that communicate this aspect of God's character. Psalm 33, verse 11. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of His heart from generation to generation. This verse gives me a lot of confidence when I think about what is God doing in my generation. There have been times in the past where I've wondered, is God doing something new? Is there a new plan that He's doing today that's never been done before? I do believe that there are new manifestations. There are, there are new aspects of what God is doing. But at the root of it, God is doing the same thing in this generation as He was doing in the past generation and the one before that. And I believe all the way back to the Garden of Eden, God has had a plan and He's been committed to seeing it through from day one. From generation to generation. That's important for us to understand. Job 23 verse 13, He is unchangeable. And who can turn Him back? What He desires, that He does. That's an awesome verse. Because we find ourselves in the midst of a spiritual conflict. And there's a lot of opposition to what God wants to do. Through the devil, through the world, through our own fallen nature. There's a lot of resistance to what God wants to do. But no one can turn God back from what he wants to accomplish. So if we can figure out what the plan of God is, we can have confidence that it's going to happen. The plan of God is going to happen. The big question for us is, are we going to be a part of it? Proverbs 19 verse 21. Many are the plans in the mind of a man 
but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Now, one of the things that we could do if we really wanted to waste our time is we could break up into small groups here and we could come up with a lot of great plans for how we were going to serve God and how we were going to do something great for Him. And we could come up with a lot of plans from the mind of man. Or we could spend that same time and energy trying to figure out what has God already planned and how can we get on board with it because that is the purpose that is going to stand at the end of the day. A couple of verses out of Isaiah. The first passage, Isaiah 14, verses 24, 27. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it stand. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. For the Lord of hosts has purposed. And who will annul it? His hand is stretched out. And who will turn it back? As men, I I don't know what it is, but I think by nature we just tend to think that God needs our help to come up with a, a game plan of how to impact the earth. But here we read, God has already purposed. He is already stretching out His hand to accomplish things. Later in Isaiah 46 verse 10, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Okay, so God has a plan and He's committed to seeing it through. He's had a plan from day one and it's going to happen. So we need to rediscover what this plan is and how do we do that? Well, we go back to Genesis. If God's plan hasn't changed, and if He's committed to seeing it through, then let's start at the beginning. The word Genesis means birth or beginning in the original language. So let's go back to the very start in Genesis chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Let's just read this together. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the cattle, and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And of course, this is getting towards the end of Genesis chapter 1. God has just spent the better part of six days creating the universe and the world as we know it. And he's getting to the end of that sixth day, and he creates the prized jewel of all creation, which is humanity. And it's the prized jewel because it is the only created being that is made in the image of God, that shares His image. Humankind is is very unique and special in that way, that we've been made in the image of God. And so as I imagine how this went down, this, this may be a little bit different than how it actually happened, but I can imagine God in eternity gone by, before the world was created and any of us were, were here, any of this was here, He was walking past a mirror God was walking past a mirror, and as he, as he looked at his reflection, he really liked it. As he saw his image, he thought, this is a great image. But there was no one to share it with. It was just God. And so uh, he decided he was going to make a creature that shared this image, so that when he had a relationship with this creature, he would see the very best, his own image. And he'd live in, in fellowship and in relationship with this creature. So God went about creating an entire universe. And then he put the earth in the middle of that universe. And then he put the garden on the earth. And then he put man in the garden. And man's job was was pretty straightforward in those early days. He was made in the image of God. And he was created to walk with God in fellowship. And to make other men and women who would walk with God and be in the image of God. That was kind of uh, the down and dirty version, at least from my perspective, of what we're seeing in Genesis chapter 1. God creates mankind. He's in fellowship with mankind. Everything is harmonious. And then he tells him, go fill the earth with men and women who also bear the image of God and live in fellowship with God. But within just a few chapters, we see this plan threatened. In Genesis chapter 3, as you read the story, 
Adam and Eve decide to go their own way. They step out from under God's rule by disobeying a direct command that God gave to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And really, the rest of the Bible is just a story of the repercussions of that decision. Good and bad. The rest of the Bible just records how bad things got and how God has gone out of His way to bring things back on track. It got so bad, within just a few chapters, we read these verses in Genesis chapter 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. So it's quite a, it's quite a change from... The picture we see in Genesis 1 where everything is fitting together, everything is in harmony, including mankind and God, to Genesis 6 where God is sorry that He even made man. How bad had it gotten? It says that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I think the NIV says all the time. That's pretty bad. If every thought is only evil all the time, that's a far cry from bearing the image of God as we go through life. So now, as God looks down on the earth, instead of seeing a world full of people who share His image, He looks down on a race that He had created to share His image, and the image is still there. You and I are made in the image of God, but now there's some other stuff that's in there. Uh, We might say that the image is distorted, or twisted, or grotesque. And as God looks down, He sees a creature that was designed to bear His image, but He also sees filth, wickedness, sin, all the things that don't characterize Him. And His response here is to do what? How does He respond here in Genesis chapter 6? Yeah, He basically hits the reset button, which happened in the way of a flood. He floods the earth... And we don't know how many people were on the earth at that time, but we know that only eight came through on the other side of the flood. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. So here we see the plan of God threatened by sin and by the fallenness of man, which not only separates us from God, but distorts the image of God in us. And so again, where we were called to share God's image, to walk with Him, and to make others who walk with him. Now you had a world full of people who did not bear God's image the way he had designed, did not walk with God, and were making a whole race of people who did not bear God's image in the way God had designed and who were not walking with God. Not something God was willing to, to live with. So God takes action. As Noah steps off the ark in Genesis chapter 9, one of the things that God tells him is found in verse 11, I establish my covenant with you And all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And so my question for you guys this this afternoon is, how could God make this promise to Noah? What was different from that side of the flood in terms of mankind, from the mankind that we see in Genesis chapter 6? Had anything changed inside of man? No. Noah still had this problem of sin. Noah's family had this problem of sin. So how could God make this promise? I believe it was because God was looking forward approximately 400 years to a man by the name of Abram. Abram was born 392 years after the flood. And God had a special purpose and plan for Abram's life. And when this purpose and plan was fully fleshed out, God was going to do something to bring his original plan from Genesis chapter 1 back on track through this guy, Abraham, and through the children that would come from Abraham, one child in particular. So God calls Abram from Genesis chapter 12 through Genesis chapter 18. You see the call of God on Abram's life, and it's progressively revealed. So the first thing God tells him in Genesis chapter 12 is, move west to a land that I'm going to show you. And I'm going to bless you and make your descendants like the stars of the sky. He didn't get a whole lot of data. But over the coming chapters, God begins to elaborate and fill in more and more of the pieces of his plan for Abram's life, or Abraham's life. 
And that's a great study to do, just to read and study through Genesis chapter 12 through 18, the call of God on Abraham's life. But it had two basic parts that I want to emphasize this afternoon. And one is captured in Genesis 17 verses 1 and 2. At this point, Abraham had been in contact with God, or I should say it had been at least 24 years since we see God first appearing to him in Genesis chapter 12. It says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And so the first part of Abraham's call from God was to walk before him and be blameless. That's what God was calling Abraham to do in these verses out of Genesis 17. Walk before me and be blameless. The second part that I want us to think about this afternoon, God's call on Abraham's life, is in the following chapter, Genesis 18, verses 17 through 19. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, And in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. For I have chosen him in order that he may command his children and household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice in order that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. And you can see there that I've tried to highlight some of the key phrases for us to to focus on this afternoon. First, Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation. So God had big plans for Abraham. And he wanted Abraham to understand the implications of those plans. We're going to talk about that here in just a moment. So God was not trying to hide from Abraham what he was going to do. It was important for Abraham to understand what God had in mind. And here specifically he says, I have chosen him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. And so part two of this call that we see from God on Abraham's life was to make more in his image. To have children and then to raise them up to keep the way of the Lord. Which sounds pretty familiar to Genesis chapter 1. To walk with God and to make more in his image. Alright, now when God says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Let's flip over to Genesis 18 and explore more what God was talking about. In Genesis 18, the chapter starts with the Lord appearing outside Abraham's tent one day. During the heat of the day, Abraham is resting in the shade. The Lord, Three men appear, one of whom ends up being the Lord. The other two were apparently angels that we see later in chapter 19. So there are these three traveling strangers that show up outside of Abraham's tent. And as they begin to talk over lunch, over a meal, the Lord reveals to Abraham, at this time next year you're going to have a son. And that's where these verses that we just read out of uh, chapter 18 flow out of. Hey, you're going to have this son, and I've chosen you so that you may command your children to keep the way of the Lord. Because this time next year it's going to happen. You're going to have Isaac. The story goes on though, and we're going to pick it up in verse 20. So as they finish the meal, after they've had this conversation, they begin to continue on in their journey, and Abraham goes to see them off. In verse 20, the Lord says to Abraham, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave. I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I'll know. Sodom and Gomorrah were two towns, cities, in a nearby valley to where Abraham was currently located. And so as God finished up, as the Lord finished up with Abraham, he and his his two traveling companions are on their way. They're on a mission to go personally inspect Sodom and Gomorrah because they've heard there's some bad stuff going on in these two towns. And they're going to see firsthand whether or not it's true. Now, Abraham, I think, had a clue that God was not going to be happy with what he saw. Because in verse 22 it says, The men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty 
righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous share the same fate as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous men, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. And so Abraham, I think, knowing that, hey, Sodom's a pretty tough place. God's probably going to be disappointed with what he finds in Sodom. But maybe there's some good guys there too. And if God's going to wipe the whole place off the map, that wouldn't be fair if there's some good guys. Now, God could have done a couple of things. He could have said, well, yes, I am. I'm going to nuke the whole place. Those guys shouldn't have been there. It's kind of like, uh, how many of you guys ever seen Lonesome Dove? It's an old western. You ride with an outlaw, you die with an outlaw. That's kind of the rule of the West. So God could have said that. Hey, you choose to, to live in Sodom, that's the risk you take. I'm going to wipe the whole place off the map. Or he could have said, you know what, Abraham, you're right. Those 50 guys, I'll make sure they get out of Dodge before I wipe the place off the map. But he doesn't do either one of those. It's pretty cool what God does here. He basically says, you know what, if I can find 50 righteous men in that city, I'll spare the whole place. Everyone gets to continue. He doesn't say anything about the other people turning around, repenting, changing their ways. He just says, if I can find 50 good guys in the city of Sodom, I'll spare the whole place. Abraham, encouraged by this, comes back to God in verse 27, probably realizing that he aimed too high, 50. And so uh, he drops it. He says, hey, what if there's only 45? Will you destroy it if there's only 45? And I won't go through all the verses. Let's skip down to verse 32. There's this bargaining going on between Abraham and God. And finally it gets down to 10. In verse 32, suppose 10 are found there. The Lord answers, for the sake of the 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. So that's where the conversation ends that evening. Meanwhile, down in Sodom, we pick up the story in chapter 19. And we're going to read the first five verses. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. Of course, Lot was Abraham's nephew, so there's a connection here. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night. Wash your feet. Then you can rise in the morning and go on your way. But they said, no, we will spend the night here in the town square. But Lot urged them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Verse 4, But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people, to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have sex with them. We can summarize those verses as Sodom fails the test. Particularly verse 4, right? I mean, how many guys showed up outside Lot's house that evening? Yeah, uh, Moses, the author of Genesis, goes out of his way to make sure we understand this wasn't just a few bad guys, right? Let's look at verse 4 again. The men of the city, both young and old, so there's no age discretion, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. Now let's skip down to verse 24, same chapter. God, of course, does end up destroying Sodom and Gomorrah and the towns of the valley. And we read that in verse 24. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went out early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. And just picture that in your mind. Abraham goes out the next morning, and he looks down on the valley... And all he sees is a wasteland, smoke rising up from the valley. And in that moment, everything's clear to Abraham, right? He knows exactly what's happened. 
What are some of the things that he knows about what just happened over the past 24 hours? God had said in Genesis chapter 18, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? God wanted Abraham to understand what was happening with Sodom and Gomorrah. And the lesson is, what happens when there is not a remnant? When there are not ten righteous within the city? Sodom is a parable for the world. The world is Sodom. What God is telling Abraham is, I don't want you to miss this lesson. I'm not going to hide from you what's about to happen here because you are going to become a great and mighty nation and through you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And so, the world is Sodom and God's plan for Abraham was to provide, to raise up. His family was going to become that righteous remnant within the town, within the world. So that now as God looks down on the earth, He doesn't destroy it. He doesn't flood it. Even though there's a lot of bad stuff going on on the face of the earth, he sees, in the midst of all of that, his people. The children of Abraham. The family of Abraham. Those are the righteous ten that are preserving the city. The whole earth is going to be blessed and has been blessed through Abraham. That doesn't mean that the whole earth is going to see the big picture and turn to God. The whole earth has already been blessed by Abraham. Because without Abraham, and without God, without what God was doing through Abraham, we get more floods. The men who would have been spared in Sodom, had there been a righteous remnant of ten, probably would have never known how close they came to being destroyed by God. And it's the same way today. People don't have to understand how they've already benefited from Abraham and from what God has done through Abraham's life to have been blessed by it. God has already blessed all the nations of the world through what he's doing through Abraham. So in Abraham, we begin to see God restoring this original plan because remember, God does not get off track. God is going to accomplish the purposes that he set out to accomplish from day one. Okay, so to summarize what God was doing in Abraham... He was bringing the people back to his original purpose from the garden. He wanted people who would walk with him and who would have children whom they would teach to walk with him, to share his image and his values. And that's the direct mission that God gave to Abraham, the call that we were talking about, the focus that God wanted Abraham to have. Walk before me and be blameless. And secondly, make more in his image. I've chosen Abraham that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. If Abraham does those two things, good things are going to happen. If Abraham walks before God and is blameless, and if he raises his children to keep the way of the Lord, he is following through with God's call on his life. But a secondary effect of that is that the whole world is going to be blessed and preserved. This remnant that God is raising up through Abraham is going to bless and preserve the whole world, just like a righteous remnant in Sodom would have blessed and preserved it. Okay, so we've kind of looked at God's plan to restore His purposes from the Old Testament. Let's move into the New. In Jesus, if God was beginning to restore the plan in Abraham and through what He was doing through Abraham, He perfects it in Christ, who is a descendant of Abraham. He's the perfection of what God is doing, of what God began to do through Abraham's life. Now this is something I'd like us to think about. Jesus did not come down to earth to die for your sins and to get you to heaven. Now for some of you, you may be about to pick up a rock and throw it at me, but that's not why Jesus came. He did not come down to earth to die for your sins and to get you to heaven. Jesus came and he died to accomplish God's plan. The plan that God had from day one. And in order to do that, he had to die. The issue of sin had to be dealt with directly. This marred image that you and I all bear because of sin, because of the choice that Adam and Eve made thousands of years ago in the garden, had to be addressed and dealt with sufficiently. That had not been done until Christ came and died on the cross. But it wasn't just to get you to heaven. It was to get us back in line with what God had in mind from day one. How does this work? 
only as God looks at us through the perfect image of Christ are we restored to God's original purposes. So only as God looks at us through the perfect image of Christ are we restored to God's original purposes. Only through Christ can we walk with God and make others in His image. Now here's a little picture that I drew up just to kind of help me think through how this works. Habakkuk 1.13 tells us that God's eyes are too pure to approve evil. He can't even look on wickedness with favor. So if we're going to be under the favor of God, if we're going to walk in fellowship with Him, this issue of evil, of sin, has to be addressed in our lives. And God has done that through Christ. So, let's look up some of these passages here. John 16.27 Jesus tells His disciples, For the Father Himself loves you, because you have loved Me, and have believed that I came from God. So the twelve were reconnected to God in perfect fellowship because of their relationship with Jesus. Not outside of Jesus, but through Jesus. And now as God looks at the twelve, He sees the righteousness of Christ. He sees the perfect image of Christ restored in the twelve. It's the same thing for you and I in Romans chapter 5. And this is the great promise of Scripture that you and I can be restored to God and to His purposes because of what Christ has done for us. In Romans 5, verses 1 and 2, it says, Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been restored, we've been brought back to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And then what really gets cool is it works in reverse. So that's what you see there. That even with Abraham, as you read those passages, God is retroactively looking at Abraham and his descendants, even under the old covenant, through the lens of Christ. Because those sins had to be paid for. And the, and the, the Bible tells us that it's impossible for those Old Testament sacrifices, the animals that they would kill day in and day out, trying to get rid of sin, trying to make themselves clean in God's sight. That stuff never worked. So Christ died for the sins not only of His own generation and all the generations that followed, but He died for the sins of the generations that had come before Him, including Abraham. So only in Christ is this image restored. Now just to kind of compare the two, these are just some thoughts. We're not going to go through this in a lot of uh, detail. Just a few thoughts and you guys can use it for further study. Acts 17.11 is always a good verse when you're listening to a speaker. Receive the word with great eagerness and then examine the scriptures daily to see if what he is saying is, is, is right. But with Abraham, he is the key figure under the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. In fact, the word covenant and testament are interchangeable. So we say Old Testament, New Testament. It's just Old Covenant, New Covenant. And like I was telling my kids, the, probably the easiest way to understand that is the Old Deal and the New Deal. So the Old Testament, is, it, represent, it captures the Old Deal that God was making with mankind. And in Christ we see the new deal, the new covenant that is available to us because of Christ. Now in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the promises that God made to Abraham were for offspring. Always physical and spiritual, Romans 9 verses 6 through 8. Now how many physical sons did Abraham have? You guys remember? Didn't have, no not 12. He did, he had more than two. He had eight that we know of. Of course he had Isaac and Ishmael, those are kind of the, the two famous ones. But after his wife Sarah died, he remarried. A woman named Keturah ended up having six other sons through her. 
And besides this, there's an interesting verse in Genesis 25, verse 5 and 6. It says that Abraham gave everything he had to Isaac. So that was the son that he, he was holding on to because Isaac was the son of promise. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward, to the east country. It's a bit of an obscure verse, but it tells us some things, you know. First of all, Abraham had uh, some wives, and he had some concubines. And he had at least six more sons through this second wife, Keturah. And perhaps he had many other sons through these concubines that he had throughout his life. A side of Abraham that maybe sometimes we don't think about too much. But the promise was not just for physical sons. Because Abraham had many of those. But there was one son, the son of promise, which was Isaac. And that was the son that God was going to be working his plan and purpose through in a special and unique way. Of course, Isaac eventually became the twelve tribes of Israel through future generations. And so under the old covenant, it was always physical and spiritual. And the focus for Abraham was to raise Isaac. And to make sure he was set up. Which is what we kind of see Abraham doing there in Genesis 25. The remnant was represented in the nation of Israel. The kingdom of Israel. That was the preserving group of people that God had on the earth. Under the new covenant in Christ. We see that the promised offspring are always spiritual. And sometimes physical. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 53 which is one of the strongest Old Testament passages that that talks about the coming Messiah, Jesus. But one of the things it tells us about the Messiah is found in verse 10. It says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Speaking of Jesus, when Jesus' soul has been made an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now, what kind of offspring did Jesus see? Who were his offspring that Isaiah 53 is talking about? It, yes, it was, it was the, there was at least 120 folks that were in Acts chapter 2 that had come out of Christ's earthly ministry, his earthly life. And of course, especially the 12 had come through his life. And so in the New Covenant, the promise is always spiritual and sometimes physical. I have four children, four physical children, and I pray for them, I I'm trying before God to do what I can as a parent to model and demonstrate a life of devotion to Christ. And few things in life, maybe nothing in life, would, would bring me more joy than to see them embrace my Lord Jesus at the same level or perhaps even more so than, than I have. I would love to see them fully embrace my values, my vision, my devotion to Christ. It may happen, it may not. There's this thing called free will. And they're going to make their own choices as they move into adulthood. I've got these four physical children. Some of them may be spiritual. Some of those four, hopefully all four of them, will choose to embrace Christ and His purposes for their life. But the promise is that God will use you to make disciples. He will give you spiritual offspring as you serve Him and follow Him. Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So it's a promise. And the focus is on making disciples out of Matthew 28. And that's probably a good place for us to finish up our time this afternoon. In the Gospel of Matthew, we have what I would call two bookends. The first words of Christ that we see Him speaking to His disciples, and the last words of Christ to His disciples from Matthew's Gospels. Matthew 4, verse 19, the first thing that we see Him calling His disciples to do is to come. Follow me. And then in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the final verses in the book of Matthew are to go and make disciples. And I think this is really cool because if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, it sounds a lot like it. 
walk with God and make others in His image. And through Christ, that has been made possible for us. The same level of intimacy that Adam and Eve shared with the Creator in the garden to walk with Him, to bear His image, and to reach the next generation that would walk with Him and bear His image. That plan hasn't changed. And in Christ, you and I get a chance to be a part of it, to walk with God and to make others in the image of Christ by following Christ and by making disciples. My spiritual generations, as I think back, this is not going to be an exhaustive list, but these are some some men that definitely stand out to me in terms of why am I, how did I get to where I am today spiritually? And I would start with my dad. And some of the key contributions that my father made in my life would be basic morality. My dad had high standards for what was right and wrong. And he made sure we understood what those were. My first memory verse was out of Proverbs 22, verse 15. And it was because my dad had this wooden paddle. And uh, that verse, that reference had been engraved in the paddle. And sometimes if you had on too much, too much clothing, you know, you'd have to drop your pants. So I think I've got that verse like tattooed onto my uh, rear end. But we looked it up one day and it, so we learned it. It said, a foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. My dad believed in that. So morality, work ethic. My dad, um, even, even today, is as active as he can be. And that was always a part of uh, his life. Basic belief in God and pursuit of excellence are some of the things that I think I got from my earthly father that have followed me into my journey with Christ. Back in 1994, I met Cecil and Jeannie Bean with the Navigators. At that time, they were at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and I was working just outside the post there. And I had already come to faith. I had given my life to Christ in the previous year. And I I had a good sense of the thou shalt nots of life. It was pretty clear to me the bad stuff that I wasn't supposed to do. But I had no clue of the thou shalts. What was I supposed to do now as a follower of Christ? Because just going through life trying not to mess up or not trying to do the bad stuff was really boring and I wasn't very good at it. So I needed someone to give me some direction, someone to help me figure out what comes next. And those are some of the things that I got from Cecil and Jeannie. Cindy and I got from Cecil and Jeannie. First of all, just a basic walk with Christ. How do you pursue that? What are some things that strengthen that? A vision for God's plan, spiritual work ethic, and skill in making disciples. Those are all part of Cecil's legacy in my life. My spiritual grandfather would probably have to be this guy, Jim Webster, who is still alive and kicking in Fort Knox, Kentucky. Still meeting with soldiers, still making disciples. Back in the 70s, he invested in Cecil and made a deep impact in his life. And I'm grateful for that because though I've never had a lot of direct contact with Jim, we've never lived in the same area, partnered shoulder to shoulder, a lot of his influence has come to me through Cecil. guy named Harv Oslin, many of you have probably not heard this name, but if you go to the Discipleship Library, Harv was a very powerful speaker, and a lot of his messages are still recorded. His current location is heaven. And he invested in Jim Webster back in the 60s when Jim was just getting started. And then Jim Downing, as I understand it from Jim Webster, was the man who had a significant influence in Harv's life in the 50s, when Harv was getting started with Christ. And of course, I think Jim was just here recently. So Jim is modeling Matthew 24, 13 for all of us. He's enduring to the end in terms of his passion for following Christ and for making disciples. Some of uh, my spiritual family that the Lord has allowed me to have an influence on, some of those who are in the room today, would be uh, these guys. I think most of you probably recognize them, but John and Steve, Nate and Scott are just four of the guys that God has blessed my life with and given me a chance to influence and to partner in the kingdom work with in the next generation that is seeking to follow Him. I have 12 men that I pray for continually Because I feel like the Lord has given me a special connection with them. And they're in the next generation that's coming up, walking with Christ and advancing the kingdom. And I read a book once called The Timothy Principles by a guy named Roy Robertson. 
It's a great little book that talks a lot about spiritual generations. One of the things that Roy said in that book was that throughout the course of his life, God had given him the privilege of discipling hundreds of people. But he had only given him a few Timothys. And he described Timothy as someone that you had a special connection with, a heart bond, a partner in ministry, and a lifelong relationship with. So these 12, these 12 men that are on that list are some of the Timothys that I feel like God has given me a lifelong relationship with and partnership with in the kingdom. And these are four of those 12. So a few questions for us to think about as we close out our time for personal application. First of all, are you pursuing your own plan in life or have you determined to sync your life with God's plan? God does have a plan and you and I are invited to be a part of it. So one of our big questions is, will we spend our energy and time pursuing our own grand plan for life or figure out what God is doing and align ourselves with that? Second question, are you leaving behind monuments to yourself or generations for God? What's your legacy? A third question is, who is investing in you? God has, if you're here today, I can almost guarantee that there are some older men and women in the faith who would love to come alongside and help you grow, put their arm around you and invest in your life. So have you committed yourself to that person? Who is the person that you're around right now who you could look to to help you grow in your faith so that you can turn and do the same for the next generation? And finally, what one person are you training in the image of Christ? In Colossians 2, 6, and 7, great memory verses, but Paul states in those verses that to learn how to walk and please God comes through being taught by others. So if we're going to learn how to walk and please God, that's something that's taught. That's not something you just figure out on your own. But Paul, as he writes the Colossians, tells them, we taught you how to walk and please God. So what is the name of one person that you're training in the image of Christ?